Is America on a slippery slope towards socialized medicine? Should the CDC be reformed in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic? And does the direct primary care model work? We'll answer those today from Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. This is the Flatlining Podcast. And welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. With me, as he has been, as president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am good, sir. I hope you are as well. I am, and I'm excited to talk about some of the things today because we're calling this episode uh, Questionable Analysis. And it's because when I was doing our prep for the show today, Ron, I came across three uh, opinion pieces, analysis pieces, uh, about some of the different things going on in the healthcare world. And they either question the system that, that we're currently, that we currently have, or that we're current, the situation we're currently in. And from another perspective, more from my perspective, I find the analysis on its own questionable with some of its conclusions. And, uh, I'd like to go ahead and, and dive into some of these with you. Absolutely. Let's have at it. All right. First one uh, coming up is a publication in the City Journal. Uh, this is by Carl J. Uh, Schramm. Hmm. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing his name right. Carl J. Schramm, um, who is a university professor at Syracuse, and he's a member of the COVID Commission Planning Group and the former president of the Kauffman Foundation. And he wrote this article on reforming the CDC before another pandemic hits. And I will. I think I tend to agree with his first point that what Joe Biden has proposed for the CDC in the coming years is to give it an increase for its budget. And Schramm has has said that really maybe throwing money at a broken thing isn't the right solution. And I generally agree. If something's broken, throwing money at it is not generally the right solution. Um, so I'm curious what your first thoughts are about Joe Biden's proposed increase to the CDC's budget. Um, and whether or not you think throwing money at it might help it. Well, and I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if if you phrase the question differently, you would come up with a very different response to this article. If somebody had said, look, you know, there's a lot to be learned from what happened with COVID. And until we fully understand and logically understand what went good, what didn't, and what needs to happen to prepare us better for the next pandemic, we shouldn't just throw money at it until we know where the money's going to work. It's, you know, mm -hmm. I would use the same healthcare analogy to say, well, look, you don't just prescribe an antibiotic for somebody until after you diagnose them and know that antibiotic's going to work. You don't just throw drugs mm -hmm. at a problem until you know what the problem is. So that would be a, a sort of logical approach I think a lot of could get to. Unfortunately, what Carl does, and Carl's a, a good economist, and but is he starts out with this really, I think, hugely biased and false premise, and he uses it as a way to then attack the budgetary issue. And to me, it actually makes the real question of, should we be throwing money at this, or, or is there a different way to make it better? It, 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 it negates that, because he starts from a place of, of a false assumption, so to speak, from my perspective. Right. And the, the place he starts from, the premise he has is that the CDC, and he says in here, had colossal failures um, for the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't know of any 
I don't want to say credible because that's the wrong word. Reputable may be the better word. Um, reputable economists, reputable public health professionals that would say the CDC's performance during the pandemic was a colossal failure, with the exception of those on the right. Well, and yeah, I mean, and and the the back part of that sentence is, and first of all, I I hate it when people start by establishing something that is a fact or indisputable when it really isn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to say, I believe, I feel, I think it may be, those are all fine. But when you start out with it is, boy, right. the rest of that sentence really better be it is. Otherwise, you, you, you know, in my perspective, you have instant credibility problems. So starting out with nearly everyone knows that the CDC's colossal failures led to the needless deaths of tens of thousands of people from COVID. That sentence is false. Not nearly everyone knows because most everybody who's credible, public health official, et cetera, would absolutely disagree with that and say that the CDC's actions, while not perfect and definitely could have been a lot better in a lot of areas, saved needless deaths of tens of thousands of people from COVID. So, you know, that that starting out with, and, and like the first sentence of his thing is, you know, following the CDC's incontestable failure. Well, no, it is contestable if you're going to make the statement that they're a failure. And the vast majority of people whose business it is to study public health, whose profession and training it is, would disagree with that statement. So it, it, it shuts down, in my opinion, what is a valid question? What should we do with the CDC? Should they get more money? And the answer may be yes, mm-hmm. or it may be no. But once you start out with these sort of false premises, yeah, the rest of it becomes very difficult to, to stomach. Right. You have to be able to identify particular issues where there might be problems. And this mm-hmm. this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm curious as to your opinion as to why um, people frequently demonize entire situa- excuse me, situations, institutions, uh, because of, you know, perhaps a few bad actors. And I'll give you a few other examples other than the CDC, because he goes after Dr. Uh, Walensky, uh, mm-hmm. the current director of the CDC, um, you know, for, from a from a non health perspective, you could talk. You know, from my experience in working in you know religious radio, you have people that constantly demonize the Catholic Church because of the actions of some people, or you have people within the church that demonize the Catholic Church because of people like Pope Francis. They disagree with them, or from a political perspective, you have people on the right that are constantly criticizing the United Nations. Um, because of the way that they operate and the way that they prioritize some of their issues, whereas people on the left, you know, will also criticize the United Nations because then they have other people that, you know, they commit human rights abuses that are participating in mm-hmm. there. But it's it's, criti- it's criticisms of the entire institution, right. not particular aspects or people. And I'm curious as to, as Americans, perhaps in particular, why we do that. Well, and, and I think it's, it's I, I think it's gotten worse. Um, I, you know, what I talk to people, and, and this may be this my own way of sort of describing the situation, is the need to have intellectual honesty, okay? And if you're going to be intellectually honest, then you can't have these extreme foregone, this is always good, this is always bad, this is, you know, because it, it closes off the intellectual honesty. Now, it, like last the, the last podcast we did, I gave some kudos to Rand Paul. There are a whole mm-hmm. lot of things that Rand Paul says or does that I agree with. But when he does, if you're going to be intellectually honest, you have to say, you know what? You got that one right, Rand. Yeah. I, I you know, people know. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of Trump. I didn't think he did a lot of good things with COVID. But he did 
do a good thing by getting the money to the drug companies before the vaccines were developed so that we were ready to go. And I'll give him credit for that. Mm -hmm. He deserves that credit. I would be hypocritical if I was one of those people that said, well, there wasn't a single thing Trump did right. Of course, there were things he did right. There were other things that, you know, that doesn't change the fact that I maybe didn't like his total. And so when you get into that, it puts you in such an extreme fenced in position that you've got to challenge everything. I mean, he goes on in this article to challenge that really that many people didn't die. Well, that's BS. I mean, he, he at one point called, and, he, and he, you almost have to do this because you've taken this opposition position. At one point, he called um, it a low fatality virus. Mm-hmm. A million people died. For two years, it was the third leading cause of death in this country. How do you call that a low fatality virus? So... Yeah, we get into these entrenched positions and it doesn't allow us to be intellectually honest and it doesn't allow us to say, hey, this was right, this was wrong. There are things, if you blow through sort of the, you know, the some of the way he presents it in here, that I think he's right about CDC failures. I think there's a, you know, a question about how much we should let the World Health Organization drive us versus us driving what's right for us. Um, I think there's some questions about, you know, in anything where hindsight is twenty twenty, how the CDC handles some things. Um, but you can't get there if you're just going to, you know, say that everything they did was wrong, because clearly that's not the case in my opinion. Right. And it, it makes it tough, too, when he comes in here, and this is what I was talking about earlier with Dr. Walensky, the head of the CDC, because she stepped up back in August and admitted that there were mistakes the CDC mm-hmm. made, and like, Basically, what you just said, hindsight's twenty twenty. In the moment, they seemed like the right decisions. And now we can look back and say that total lockdowns didn't work the way we thought they were going to work. And putting, taking kids out of schools had a much more serious effect than what we had anticipated. Um, but the problem is is that when, when she did that, publications like the City Journal and other notably right-wing publications came out and said, said as an, I told you so, now get rid of the entire institution. Right. Right. And so exactly. it's, it seems like with, with them, they're, they're attempting to admit, yes, there were mistakes made. We want to correct those mistakes moving forward so we can have better public health policy. But there are people out there that just want to see the whole thing burn. And yeah. I don't want to say Schramm's one of them, but he, he almost seems to lean in that direction right. to me. Well, and, and I'll tell you, I was I was having this discussion with someone else who was in the, you know, the CDC all has to be torn apart camp. Um, and I said, you know, l- let me talk to you about a different situation. They said, okay. I said, you know, we've all seen those situations where it's in the heat of the moment. Things are happening quickly. Police officer fires their weapon, mm-hmm. kills somebody. After the fact, we turn out that even though he was six foot tall and 220, he was actually only 16 years old, so he wasn't an adult. And that thing in his pocket was a piece of licorice, not a, you know, not a handgun. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight, you killed an unarmed child. And think about the people who take that one situation and say, well, that's why we have to defund the police. Mm-hmm. And I was, he goes, yeah, that's terrible. And I go, that's exactly what you're trying to do with CDC, you know, in a lot of ways. You're, you know. Was every decision they made correct? Absolutely not. They had limited information. They had limited time in which to deal with it because it was expanding and and growing so fast. It was a novel virus. We'd never seen it before. I said, I can't imagine 
the pressure that some of those people were under, whether it's Fauci or anybody else, with all this stuff coming in, we don't know what's going to happen. It could get out of control. This could kill millions of people. And then you've got to make a decision based on limited amount of time, limited amount of information. And to go back in hindsight and try to use some of those decisions that turned out to be not correct, um, not completely you know, the right thing to do once we had more information, to use it to burn down the CDC is akin to saying you know, a police officer in the heat of the moment killed an unarmed child, 16-year-old, and mm-hmm. therefore we should burn down the whole police department. When the reality is, in both scenarios, what we should do is try to take this as a learning tool and figure out how do we do this better next time? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we try to right. avoid this next time? So that's the problem that I have with that kind of stuff. Burn, burn it and, down and, is very uh, reactionary and revolutionary, yeah. which is not the direction I think we ought to no. go. <laughs> no. Uh, let's dive into some of the things that he points out because he, he, he cites two studies um, that took a look at the CDC's handling of COVID-19, one from the National Academies of Sciences and the other from the Commonwealth Fund. Um, and he takes issue with, a nut, with their common conclusions that they had. Um, the first one, he's, now, granted, I haven't seen these studies. He doesn't link them in here. Mm-hmm. Um, I could probably find them and put them in the show notes if I can. They could be paywalled, so fair warning on that. Mm-hmm. But the first conclusion he identifies in both of these is that they think that Congress failed to appropriate enough funds for the CDC and that once it remedies the flaw by increasing the funding, we'll have better uh, immunity from the virus and they'll be better able to combat the virus. This is that first point that we talked about before is before we get into whether or not he thinks that's correct, just the idea of do we need to throw more money at a problem to make it work? You know, is the CDC short, was the CDC short staffed in a way? Were they missing funding they needed to do their job? Or is this more of a, their government agency and they need to be a little bit bigger just so they can continue to operate? Yeah. And, and the interesting part to this is to a couple of, first of all, you know, the, the NAS study, which NAS is a, you know, this is a long-standing entity. Um, so without reading all 542 pages, pretty mm-hmm. credible in, in most cases. Okay. Um, I think it, it's worthwhile to sort of read the NSS study because they, they do tend to suggest that there's underfunding there. Um, and so that's where I say, well, maybe there is, or maybe there are other things new as well. Um, but he, he sort of quotes that and then another study. And then he says, and six other studies all had the same finding. Well, part of me is like, geez, if all the studies say it's underfunded, even if, you know, before I've even read them, I tend to mm-hmm. say, boy, that may be the case. Um, and that may be part of the solution. Now, from what I read on sort of the executive summary of the NSA study, it didn't say that fixing it, money would fix everything and make us suddenly better. It was it was one of many things they thought should happen. Mm-hmm. There was some information in there about uh, the way communications happen and streamlining communication decision-making process that happen that's what happens in any bureaucracy so he sort of jumps to the conclusion well if we just give them more money all this will be rosy right. no that's not really what it said it said they need more money and and they had a number of other things that, that should happen the next thing he he lo- takes a look at is what i've seen as a repeated talking point among certain people on the right certain people critical of of the national COVID response um, and that's that death statistics aren't yeah. accurate and that no one is questioning their credibility. And part of this stems, for those of you that don't remember or choose not to remember, which is, I think, perfectly okay at this point, there was a theory out there for a while that people were fudging death certificates. 
um, in order to get more funding. That was one thing that was going around out there. Uh, another, he actually, he even mentions that in here. He says the, the flawed PCR testing led agencies to overstate a number of infections and, and that ad hoc payments, payment methods, excuse me, devised by Medicare, Medicaid, and private payers motivated hospitals to exaggerate COVID admissions. And we can get into that in a second. But, but the other part was that the idea that, well, if you got hit by a car and you had COVID, that would count right. as a COVID death, right. which I don't know of any place where that actually got counted. But that's the thing. That's the second thing in here is that he thinks that they don't, they're not questioning right. some of the statistics that are widely accepted. And I right. think and part of it is it's self-evident. They're widely accepted by the general population. Well, and and the, the test for it was... Um, Pre-COVID, the number of fatal deaths in this country was very consistent. Okay, almost, almost scarily so. I mean, mm -hmm. when you think about you know a country of 330 million people and how many die every people die every year from various causes, from natural causes, accidents, etc. Okay, if you look year over year for several years leading up to COVID, the total number of deaths would vary by less than 30,000 people a year. I mean, that's a very tight pattern. And then all of a sudden COVID hits and you see this huge jump in the total number of deaths. And you know what? If you add up the years where COVID was here and compare that actual number of deaths to what they call expected deaths, which are easy to predict because it's been very constant, you come up with about a million people, mm -hmm. which is oddly enough, exactly or very close to the number they talk about were COVID-related deaths. So that's one thing to say, well... If it wasn't COVID, why did a million more people die than we would have expected? The right. second thing is, if this was all accident victims or cancer victims that they were counting as COVID to get more money, we should have seen the number of deaths by accident or cancer or whatever drop mm -hmm. to correspond to that. And we would, should have seen the exact same number of total deaths. We didn't see that. The number of cancer deaths, the number of heart-related deaths, the number of accident deaths, et cetera, all stayed very consistent. And the only thing that popped up were the deaths according to COVID. So one, you know, they don't need to go back and actually do a, you know, an autopsy and say, well, you know, would this person have died without COVID or with COVID, et cetera, because they've got this secondary proof, if you will, on the total number of deaths compared to the expected deaths. Mm -hmm. And what no one on his side will answer is, if it wasn't COVID, what killed a million people? Because it right. had to be something. Because a million people more died than what we thought were going to die. Mm -hmm. The other part, and let's talk about that other part of, of his this little section of his here about the the payment methods devised by Medicare, Medicaid, and private payers. There's, I I find it difficult to believe that there would be a grand conspiracy among two government organizations and a bunch of private insurance companies to pay hospitals more. Just based off our experience with Medicare and the payers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that. And, and, and maybe you could see some people fudging some, you know, records to try to get more money by including COVID as a, um, you know, as part of the diagnosis or an, or an inaccurate PCR test or whatever. But that wouldn't account for the number of deaths because then what we would have is people in the hospital being called COVID patients that might have already been there anyway for some other thing. Mm -hmm. But again, we're, you know, so what you might have had is an over hospitalization number, but 
but what do they do then? Kill them to support the diagnosis? I mean, you know, where did these extra million fatalities come from? I mean, I, I actually had one person say, well, there wasn't an extra million fatalities. I said, well, then where did, how did they come up with those bodies? I mean, there are a million extra graves here. Right. You know, I mean, they didn't, this isn't just putting a number on a ledger. At some point, there's a, there's a person there, you know, so, um, yeah, it's just you, you have to really stretch to get that kind of conspiracy and you have to ignore so many other facts like the extra million people that died um, mm -hmm. in order to, you know, in order to come to some grips with this. He also points out in here that um, regarding um, we, vaccinations that because we don't have he, he claims we don't have good data on um, the deaths and the. COVID admissions, because he claims that there was some conspiracy here, yeah. um, that we don't have a good picture on the efficacy of COVID vaccinations. But I would point you to the hospitalization rate and to the fact right. that it's lowest that it ever has been in the pandemic right now. Well, and you can see this, you know, very, you know, very understandable, very quick inverse relationship between as the vaccination rate went up and the hospitalization rate falls. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I mean, it, it isn't like, Vaccinate went up today, it fell tomorrow because there's that, you know, you got to get time for the vaccine. But vaccination rates start to go up and about four weeks later, you start to see the thing, you know, trail off in this incredibly inverse relationship. And again, if, if, if it weren't for the vaccines keeping people out of the hospital, why did they fall all of a sudden? Why did those vaccination rates, you know, was it coincidental? Anyway, we've talked a lot about true, true and unrelated, but this isn't one of those. This is true, true and related. This is causality. Mm -hmm. The next point he's got in here um, is that both reports, he says, fail to point out that for all the rhetorical posturing about a need for a whole of nation approach, CDC actively resisted relying on private sector resources that could have greatly improved the agency's response time and effectiveness. Uh, he says early in the pandemic, when the CDC had no test to determine whether individuals were infected, the agency initially refused to work with major diagnostic testing firms to develop a strategy. Now, I don't know how early he's referring to the pandemic. I would say that it was probably in the way early days before we called it a pandemic. Yeah, no, this is, and I'll be, this is back to being intellectually honest. Sure. I think from some of the, some of the reviews I've seen of this report and other reports, one of the things that they talked to that I think is a legitimate criticism, I don't think it was a colossal failure because mm -hmm. I think they, they fixed it fairly quickly is the ability for the government sector to effectively work with and communicate with the private sector. You know, the, and this isn't, this doesn't happen in just CDC. We see it in all through a lot of sure. things. And, and I think that's a legitimate criticism was we've got to get much quicker at doing what we know helped this pandemic, which was getting the private sector involved, whether it was the vaccine manufacturers, the test manufacturers, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. There was in this initial stage, very early stage, some difficulties there, and we should make that better. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, I think there's a legitimate criticism. It's not a colossal failure, but when it's wrapped in the rest of this crap, it's hard to, you know, take it seriously. Right. And you think about the progress we made just even going through the, the first year of the pandemic. I mean, we went through uh, having long lines at government-run uh, mm -hmm testing facilities set up at schools and, and, at, and at stadiums to being able to go through the drive through at Walgreens and get a right. PCR test in 20 minutes. Right. Um, we've made great strides through the, the mm -hmm. pandemic, and I think that needs to be um, commended because yeah. regardless if there, that mistake was made early on, it was corrected, and it was corrected to a point where I think it, it did help overall. Right.
I agree. Um, fourth, he says both reports suggest that if universal health insurance had been in place, controlling the virus, virus somehow would have been easier and more effective. Um, he says that they don't offer a cause-effect argument, but I can suppose that if this is what those reports are suggesting, the idea would be that people would be more apt to use um, the hospital systems and the doctors that are available to them rather than holding back until the last minute until they had to go when they were became seriously ill because they wouldn't have to worry about their ability to pay. Well, yeah. So there's, there's a, the, the, and he's right that they're, you know, that this isn't a, like a double blinded study. There isn't like a cause and effect argument. Mm-hmm. It's, but the, the position they're taking is, and they use some of the examples of, of England and, you know, some of what they were able to do that we're able to do. One is you're right. that people will go to the doctor more quickly if they, you know, if they don't have to pay for it. And, and some of the early, through, even through the, the later parts of the pandemic, you know, catching it early before the symptoms to get too bad, before it gets too rooted, um, is helpful. So they're mm-hmm. saying that would have been helpful. I don't think that's a completely illogical conclusion, that if everybody had insurance coverage, we, it might have helped. I don't know if you could, and I don't think they do try to draw exactly how much help. And then the other is, and this was clearly a, an issue that we had in the beginning parts of it, where... You know, when you've got a country with, you know, 30 million people uninsured, that's 30 million people that don't probably have some sort of a already connection with a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. They're uninsured. Whereas when you deal with like England and some of those other, they were much better able to sort of push information out through their their delivery system um, than we were because there's 30 million people were like, how do we reach them? Right. And how do we get that information out? So, mm-hmm. again, I'm not saying that I think that if we had Medicare for all, it would have been dramatically different. I think it's not an illogical conclusion to think with, you know, with some sort of universal coverage, um, it would have been a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Finally, uh, he says the common conclusion of both reports is that uh, there's a concern for reestablishing trust in the CDC. You just talked about your, your friend that wants to burn it down as well. Yeah. Um, and he talks about uh, misinformation and disinformation. And he points out that there was flawed information coming out from the FDA and the CDC. And again, I think that that's what we would point to as those were things we thought we knew at the time that ended up being wrong and they were corrected later on. Now, how much humility was included when they were corrected? I don't know. We can argue about that. Oh, yeah. Maybe there yeah. should have been more, but it was corrected later on. Um, yeah. So other than that, I'm not really sure where he's pointing to misinformation, disinformation, because it seems to constantly come from those who don't believe in COVID-19. Or well, it, de- it depends on what you think, what you're, what you think is the misinformation or disinformation. I mean, there are still people out there who think, who are taking the position that masks don't help at all. I would argue that's not true, and that's what, you know, right. or that, you know, yes, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine does help. No, there's actual clinical studies that show that it doesn't, it's actually harmful. Or yes, I sh- you know, so those people would say, well, they keep saying masks help, that's misinformation, versus, you know, somebody going, well, saying that, you know, that um, we could have solved this with just natural immunity is misinformation, which mm-hmm. I believe it is. So it, part of it is what you think is, you know, is misinformation, what you're categorizing as that. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have Carl Schramm's uh, article in City Journal linked in the show notes for this program at flatlining.net.
Ron, as we talk about misinformation, disinformation, I thought I would share this with you before we jump into our next segment that um, I've recently gotten one of these, you know, internet kind of cable TV subscriptions and included in it is uh, CGTV. And I had to look up what it was, but it is the China Global Television Network, um, which is essentially the propaganda, the English language propaganda arm of the Chinese Communist Party. So I, I had it on the other day for just for my own amusement, and I had to laugh when they were talking about China reducing some of their COVID uh, restrictions in some of their major cities, because you know they've had a zero COVID approach, um, and they've had some pretty severe lockdowns over the past few years. Uh, and at the end of the article, I had, or at the end of the story, I had to laugh when the reporter said that the the Chinese uh, government is very proud that they had their, their people locked down for so long because now they have the competitive advantage that they got all of their people vaccinated before they went back out in public. Yeah. Uh, however, as far as I'm concerned, I, don't, I believe the Sinovax vaccine was uh, woefully undefected compared to what oh. we had in the U.S. And I know for a fact that they have not gotten everyone vaccinated because they still have COVID. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, you put a spin on something. and um, I mean, talk about disinformation. Out. Yeah, exactly. The next thing we want to jump into uh, today uh, is an article by um, Jack Calavrintinos and Ryan Ellis, and uh, it's the executive director of CPAC's Coalition Against Socialized Medicine and the president uh, of the Center for a Free Economy. And they write in real clear policy about America's march towards socialized medicine. And I thought when I was reading this, I would get a little bit more uh detail from what they were expecting, but really they had uh, two main points. And the first one is the Inflation Reduction Acts, um, granting the ability for Medicare to negotiate some drug prices is a slippery slope towards socialized medicine, as well as the elimination of patent protections on drugs uh, that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I want to dive into both of those and, and see if whether or not they're actually a slippery slope towards uh, socialized medicine in that way. And the first one, like I said, has to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. And this is something that we saw Democrats campaign on during the midterms. They were very excited that they were going to be able to, quote-unquote, negotiate Medicare drugs. And as we talked about on this program, really that comes down to about four or five drugs a year out of the tens of thousands of drugs that are approved by Medicare. So do you think that that in and of itself is a slippery slope? to Medicare for All or, or uh, the NHS? Well, so, I, I mean, I think that there's a legitimate, um, there should be a legitimate concern about a slippery slope to, to socialized medicine or Medicare for All. I, I, mm -hmm. Now, I think these guys are, you know, are, are pointing to things that in and of themselves don't get me there. Um, but maybe what they're doing is saying these are like, you know, the, the pre-shocks to the big earthquake. Um, so in and of itself, you know, the ability for the, for Medicare to force negotiation on drugs, you know, that doesn't tell me, oh my God, the next step is socialized medicine. Right. But there are a lot of indicators or precursors and a lot of reason I think where, you know, people should 
think that we're on this slippery slope to, to socialized medicine or Medicare for all that they kind of ignored in this article. But um, so I think they've got the right mm -hmm. question, just sort of the wrong evidence of it. Mm -hmm. The other the other part of this um, was the elimination of patent protections. Uh, and this was in part um, by the World Trade Organization. They asked people to do that for the COVID vaccine so it could be quickly distributed. Right. Um, and more companies could develop them. But if I recall correctly, earlier this year, Moderna was suing Pfizer for stealing its intellectual property for their COVID vaccine. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure where their criticism comes from on this one. Yeah. And again, I, you know, to me, they're sort of missing the overall point. Uh, they could have done a much better job of listing reasons why we, you know, why things are headed down the path of potentially Medicare for all socialized medicine than these two examples. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, you know, be like, be like having a weather forecast and saying, you know, that was all detailed about it's going to rain tomorrow and say, well, my joints hurt. Right. Wait a minute. There's a much better, you know, why don't you point to the weather forecast? That's radar. the thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's radar. Don't talk to me about your joints hurting. You know, that's so I think they missed the point. And, and you know, I personally think that while these might be, criticizable issues. Sure. Uh, I think that, you know, for example, Bernie Sanders announcing he's running for president is closer to being a slippery slope of socialized medicine than either of these issues are on their own. Oh, well, and, and, and so, you know, when I look at this, so, so here's, you know, if you're thinking, well, how would we get there? You know, how would this country go to, well, first of all, I would say all that we've proven is that what we're doing now is unsustainable. You know, we continue to, to get deeper and deeper in the hole. We continue to spend more and more money, a larger and larger percent of GDP. So we are on an unsustainable path. The aircraft is losing altitude. Mm -hmm. At some point, it hits the ground. Okay, there's one. Now, when you think about in a, you know, in a, in a democratic society that we all love, where it's, you know, we say, wait, well, 51% of the people want something, that's what happens. Okay, we mm -hmm. like that, except when we don't. All right, well, let's look at, who the system works for and who it doesn't. We have 30 million people that are uninsured in this country. That's 10% of the population. Most elections now are, are, you know, are being decided by one or 2% variance. So you've mm -hmm. got 10% of the population that's uninsured. Why wouldn't they vote for socialized medicine? Hell, they suddenly get something they don't have. Okay. Mm -hmm. You've got $195 million of medical debt. Okay. One in 10 people, that's another 10% of the population, has medical debt, okay? 16 million people have medical debt over $1,000, and 3 million people have medical debt over $10,000. Well, they're, they should be in favor of this because mm -hmm. they're the ones who get hurt by medical debt. You've got a fair chunk of the population who says they don't like their insurance company. They don't like the, the, the what, I, what I would suggest is this. Look, we're starting to get large percentages of the population that purely for self-interest should vote for Bernie's proposal. And I'm not trying to say that Bernie's right on this. I'm just saying if you look at your situation, mm -hmm. you should say, hell yeah, why wouldn't I? Okay, starting to get a pretty sizable portion of the population. And the folks like who wrote this article, whatever. So show me your solution. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't want to go down there, I mean, one could argue, and I, I could make a strong argument that, you know, what's been proposed so far for Medicare for all is not the right solution. But at least they're throwing something up. Right. The other side hasn't put up a solution. They're just mm -hmm. like, well, that would be bad. Okay, well, what's your option? So I'm left to choose between what I know won't work, our current current trajectory, a solution that you tell me won't work, and nothing else. You haven't presented right. something else. So 
to me, that's the reason why we're on this slippery slope is we're starting to get way too many people that would benefit from it and no other alternative. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting you bring that up because as we talked about repeatedly this year, and as I mentioned, as early as this year is the response to Biden's State of the Union, Republicans, you're exactly right, Republicans have had absolutely no response to what they would do for health care in this country. Right. They don't even talk about repeal and replace anymore because they... No. Just abandoned that after John McCain nuked that proposal a long time ago. Um, well, seemingly a long time ago. Uh, the other interesting thing is, lest we forget, Joe Biden was one of the few Democratic candidates in 2020 to not support Medicare for all. Oh, yeah. Um, the vast majority of them were in favor of a plan by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. If we, if, if Sanders or Warren had, had won the nomination and was sitting in the White House with a controlled House and a, you know, in a 51, 50, you know, and a tiebreaker vote in the Senate, we'd have had a vote on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could have done it through reconciliation, or they could have just gotten rid of the, the, um, the filibuster rule. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have, I, I think there would have been a vote um, right. because of all this other stuff. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pretty conservative Republican, and he was chiding against Biden. I said, actually, you know, if somebody on the left was going to win, you, you should be lucky that it's him. Right. Because he's probably the only thing that kept there from being a vote because he wasn't going to do it. Because mm-hmm. um, he's never been a fan of, of Medicare for All. You got a, a fairly center-driven Democrat in the, in the White House. If it had been a hardcore right-driven Democrat, we'd have had a vote, and that would have mm-hmm. been interesting. And he, he was big on, in the election, uh, expanding the Affordable Care Act, particularly mm-hmm. by uh, what he called the family glitch, by fixing yeah. that problem. Yep. Um, and I think he's also expressed support for Medicare buy-ins, but that's just Medicare never buy-in, come to fruition. Medicare fixing the family glitch, um, having um, uh, the public option he was a big fan of. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had these sort of others, which he didn't get any of those done either. But again, it, it if, if nothing more, at least the left is throwing up a plan. You know, do you think that healthcare will drive people to the polls in 2020? Let's see, where are we coming up on 2024? Because, and I ask because at least in 2020, you had, we just came out of, well, we were still in really the COVID pandemic. There was a lot more focus put on public health and a lot more focus put on how much people were paying for healthcare. You didn't see it quite so much in 2020, or excuse me, 2022, in part because everything got expensive because we have record high inflation. Do you think healthcare will matter in the 2024 election? And if not, what do you think it would take for it to get it to matter? Well, I think it's largely going to depend on who the candidates are. Okay. Um, And, you know, and I forget what it was, you know, it's the economy, stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's happening with the economy? Um, you know, the candidates, I mean, if it's a, let's say it's a rematch of Trump-Biden, um, the personality parts of it are going to outweigh any of the other stuff. Sure. It's going to be a mandate on two individuals and what everybody thinks they either stand or don't stand for. Uh, you know, let's say it's, uh, and I'm going to pick two. Let's say it's um, uh, DeSantis and, um, I'm drawing a blank on the governor of California. Um, Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom. Okay, two brand new people. Okay, left and right. Um, then I think it's going to get more into, um, and neither one of them. I mean, Newsom's not tied to the hip with Biden, and mm-hmm. DeSantis not tied to the hip with Trump. So we're going to get rid of that. Then I think it's going to get more into the economy. Now, if at that point we've gotten energy cost under control and everything, 
and healthcare sort of bubbles back up to the forefront of, um, you know, what's hurting the economy, and we start to see the uninsured population, then yeah, there's a chance it's it's a major ballot issue, um, especially depending on what either of them has to do to try to swing the base and the vote. If Gavin Newsom has to play to the hard left and run on a Medicare for all policy, um, yeah, it's, it, it could definitely be part of the equation. I don't, I don't even think he would have a problem with that, given the way no. he's tried to adopt that in California. Well, he said he wanted to adopt it, and then when it came onto his desk, he, yeah. he voted it down or he vetoed it. But uh, Well, and it's when I say if he has to, I think, you right. know, once you get into a national election like that, and he's a smart guy, he's a politician. Same, DeSantis, smart guy and a politician. You know, then you start reading the national tea leaves on where do I need to position myself on a, on a, on a you know, general election rather than just in my country mm-hmm. you can run on medicare for all in california because it's a that's a great place to do it there you've yeah. got you know you're singing to the choir there but when you've got to carry you know pennsylvania and michigan and ohio mm-hmm. the rust belt and stuff well then you got to think about what those what that crowd you know what tune that crowd wants you to sing and you might change from you know you know from rock to country if that's what it needs to be i mean um to use a bad analogy, but um, so I think it, it could. A lot of it depends on what's happening in other things. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have this uh, article uh, as short as it is linked in the show notes for this program and at flatlining.net. Finally, Ron, I wanted to talk about what we might call a questionable solution, and I don't call it that in a, necessarily a, a bad way, only that it's it's novel and I, I don't think I've seen it before. And there's a uh, column in Real Clear Health by Dr. Chad Savage about direct primary care. And I guess before we get too deep into it, what is direct primary care? So direct primary care is this idea that as a consumer... I should be able to um, pay a monthly fee like I would, you know, at a membership, at a gym membership or whatever, to a primary care physician and forget about the whole insurance thing. And my monthly fee, I can go to see that primary care physician for whatever I need. You know, they can take more time with me. They don't have to submit bills to anybody. It's it's like a subscription-based service. Just like, you know, when I pay my monthly fee for Netflix, they don't care if I watch one movie or 24 hours a day worth of movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And that for that monthly fee, I'm going to get all this access um, and and all this other stuff. So that's sort of the concept of, you know, think about it like a gym membership. Um, Mm -hmm. And that it'll get rid of it and it'll be cheaper and it'll get rid of all this need for insurance, et cetera. Right, it, and it's it's kind of interesting because the subscription model has definitely expanded over the last few years to everything from you know, we, for I think Amazon Prime was probably one of the first non uh, entertainment versions of a subscription model. Uh, you know, you get your free shipping uh, in two days, but and now everyone to my grocery store Kroger has uh, a subscription for seemingly things. I, I have no idea what they're offering for their subscription service. Uh, which doesn't make it worth the $100 a year. 
but when we talk about healthcare, um, my first question when I was reading about this is, okay, this sort of makes sense when you're talking about primary care. What happens when you need to see a specialist? Well, and even the primary care, you've got to be sort of careful about it making sense. It makes sense for some people. Um, but then what does that do to everybody else? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's one thing to think about this, you know, the Netflix fee is one thing, you know, oh, I can do that. That's not too much money out of my budget, mm-hmm. et cetera. So when we think about primary care, let's think about doing it for your whole family. Okay. Mm-hmm. A family of five, you know, take my family. Um, well, one visit, one relaxed office visit at straight Medicare rates Okay, which most doctors will say they have to have more than that to really survive. Right. Well, let's call a visit at a little bit more than Medicare rates, about 150 bucks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. How many times is my family going to have to use the doctor? Now, if those three kids, they're going to use it a fair amount because I mean, raising kids, there was always sniffles and there's immunizations and all that other stuff. Well, how much of a monthly fee can the average, you know, and I mean by the median uh, income person afford? A lot of families, an extra 200 bucks a month is, they don't have, mm-hmm. you know, to, to do this. Particularly uh, right now. Particularly right now. Well, if you've got a family of five and, you know, that's less than one and a half visits a month, well, most families of five are going to do more than that, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about it. So it's really not affordable to a bunch of the population. Now, for the top 5% of the earners, yeah, absolutely, it'd be great. Just pay my monthly fee. But for a lot of people, it's just not that even isn't doable for the primary mm-hmm. care. Now, what most of these people who talk about is, you know, with this sort of physician direct model, if you will, is you pay this monthly fee for primary care and then you have what are, you know, sort of cheap catastrophic insurance for specialist stuff that what we used to have, you know, that mm-hmm. old, you know, 80-20 with a big deductible because it, there's just not that many people need a specialist. Again, true for some part of the population, that'd be fine, especially the healthy people making decent money. But for people, especially the you know the 5% of the population that chews up 50% of all the cost, that's undoable. And so it's a policy that fits the you know, the 20-something, 30-something-year-old who's got a college degree and making decent money, um, but it doesn't fit the, you know, the 60-year-old with brittle diabetic with MS. Mm-hmm. And once you pull that young, healthy population out and let them do their own thing, then the insurance model breaks down for the rest of the people. Then those people that are the 60-year-old with MS and a brittle diabetic, you know, their insurance premiums turn into, you know, $10,000 a month which is not doable because we've talked about this before because healthcare is one of those weird things where, you know, 50% of the population chews up less than 5% of the total expenses, but that 50% of the population paying into the insurance premiums is what makes it possible for that top 5%, Mm -hmm. you know, and and looking at it on an individual basis would be like me looking at it saying, well, God, I paid in all this money for my car insurance and I've never had an accident. I got screwed. Well, I did until the time I totaled my vehicle. Right. And then it's everybody else paying for it. So mm-hmm. there's some real flawed premises in what they're talking about and how this would be any kind of a solution at all. Right. It, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm all for having people having more options. And, and sure. we've talked about this before about having – it's good to bring ideas to the table, especially when right now there's only really one idea at the table, which is Medicare for all. Um, 
in this particular article, this is a physician who runs a direct care clinic in Brighton, Michigan, which is just west of Metro Detroit. Um, he also talks about how there, there needs to be some regulation changes. And the one that I, that I took most note of is that the agreements between the physician and the patient need to be identified as financial contracts, which would then exempt them from insurance regulations. I took note of this based off something that we talked about several weeks ago, uh, or possibly several months ago at this point, about Solidarity Health Share and their either inability or unwillingness to all of a sudden to start paying some of the patient's claims, and that because they're not an insurance company, they don't have the same regula regulatory um, uh they're not guided by the same regulations an insurance company is so that they're not having to, to, you know, they're not going to face any particular consequences in the same way an insurance company would if they stopped paying claims. This remark in here about having direct primary care um, be a financial relationship rather than an insurance relationship seemed to me to cross into that same line. Yeah, it does. And it comes from what he's talking about. It comes from the first time this came up was, uh, I think, a family practice group in New York, I want to say. And they did this, and well-meaning people, and they did this thing where they said, look, you know, just pay me X dollars a month. I can take, you know, a panel of 2,000 patients. I'll know how much money I'm getting. I know that I can care for all 2,000 of those patients, and I don't have to deal with bills and administrative costs and everything, and it will be good. You know, and you come in as many times as you want to. And they were clear to say, if it has to go out to a specialist, you got to have insurance or a checkbook for that. I can't cover that. But if it happens inside my four walls, I'll do it for this, okay? And and they got shut down because somebody said, well, you're you're offering them, you know, they pay you X dollars a month, and then no matter how much their usage is, you, you know, you cover it. And if they never come in and see you, you still get to keep it. And I said, mm -hmm. yeah. And he said, that's insurance. That's the definition of insurance, mm -hmm. a flat payment where the company is, is at risk or gets benefit. And And the concern that they had was that might all work well and good, but let's take COVID as an example. Sure. What happens when COVID hits and now all those people say, I want to be seen and I'm sick now and you get overloaded and you finally say, look, I've collected all your, your monthly premiums or you make them pay quarterly and I'm closing my doors. All these people have no protection because this is now a financial exchange and that's where they get back to part of the benefits of having it called insurance and those regulations is there are things to protect the consumer from just mm -hmm. that. An insurance company has to have reserves. They can't just not yeah. pay claims. The state can take those reserves and pay out those claims. There's certain things, other things they have to do. So, you know, that's where this came from. And again, it, it probably works well for a bunch of people. It just hurts everybody else. And, you know, it's interesting because as we're talking about it, we're talking about potential solutions and, and Medicare for all and the employer-based system that we have. You know, it sounds like whatever the solution is, insurance in some particular way, regardless of who holds it, is the proper solution. And it seems like all of the other countries have figured that out as well, either if it's a state-sponsored insurance plan or if it's an employer-sponsored insurance plan or if it's privately funded. However it is, it seems that insurance in a particular way is the only way to really get a handle on this. Yeah, and there, yeah, it, it, absolutely. I mean, there are things where um, it just makes sense as a society to spread the cost over multiple people, over over everyone, if you will, because the cost would be too much to be borne by just the consumer. Even when you think about it, um, education. 
You know, mm-hmm. why is education, public education, paid for through property taxes? Property taxes where people who have no kids or whose kids have already used it or whatever or will never use it have to pay the same as the family that has seven kids who are all using it. You mm-hmm. know, one could argue, well, that's not fair. Why do I don't have any kids? I have to pay for the same. That's, because if you caused, and we, and we could see what it would look like, because just having the consumer of the service pay for that service, and in the case of education, we've deemed it to be a public good, it would look like private school. And yeah, some people can afford private school, but a lot of people can't. And if it was purely on the heads of if it was, hey, if you've got a kid that's going to school, you pay X dollars a head and only you pay for it, that's called private school, and it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Same thing with healthcare is if they said, all right, you got to pay your way. You know, we're not going to spread this cost over everyone. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for others. It's interesting, and I think this will be my final point. He he takes a bit of a swipe at Medicare for All in here, uh, both through the taxes and, and with the wait times. And um, I, I find it interesting because I think it all comes from a, a whatever your perspective might be, on Medicare for All. In the previous article from Reclair Policy, they pointed out that Canada and England have both extremely long wait times um, and that their taxes are very high. But I think if you look at it from someone who lives there in their perspective, kind of like we talked about before, or I've talked about before on the Friday Pulse Check, at least in England, it's NHS is popular regardless yeah. of your political party because it's the system that they have and right. i would argue that if you go to canada you tell them well you got a 56 week wait time in prince edward island they say yeah that's way better than it was a year ago during covid right. when it was 65 weeks right. so we're making improvement so it, it all comes from your perspective on on this particular issue and perhaps for this particular physician you know if if cost is well, I don't, I don't even want to say cost because we already talked about how it wouldn't necessarily save everyone money. It would really only save a certain percentage of people's money. But um, it, it looks like for him, his priority would be access as opposed to cost and quality necessarily when we look at a healthcare equation. Right. right. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll have this in the show notes and at flatlining.net. Ron, we are just about out of time, so I want to thank you again for coming on the Flatlining Podcast. Thank you. I enjoyed it. For our final thought today, have you heard of nocebos? Similar to the placebo effect, nocebos is the phenomenon of negative opinions spurring negative health outcomes. In an Israeli study published in Nature this week, researchers found that among individuals who received three Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine shots and who were hesitant about the second shot were more likely to experience some of the vaccine's temporary side effects. This totaled about 16% of those studied. The researchers concluded that instead of investing public health messaging that promote the vaccines to the unvaccinated, health agencies should instead raise awareness about the low risk of serious side effects. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Harrigan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.